morning, everybody. My name is Greg. I serve here as the senior pastor. If you're visiting with us, I say thank you for being here. It is a children's church Sunday, and if you are a kiddo, you may be dismissed to children's church. If you're wondering if I'm old enough to be in children's church, just look at those who are leaving and think, am I about their age? And that will certainly guide you into your thinking. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Daniel, for reading for us Ephesians chapter 4. We are going to be studying this morning this new way that we learned Christ. So let's pray, and then we will dive right into our study this morning. Father, thank you for the word that you've given us. Thank you for the new life in Christ that you've made available. Through the internal working of the Spirit, Lord, I pray that we would put on the new self, that we would be renewed in our minds, that you would drive home in us a, an unquenchable desire to think on your things, to meditate on your truth. Lord, we're yours. And that changes everything. I pray that we wouldn't rely on external distinctions. Where we go to church on Sunday, what we do, how we spend our money, to Divide us from the world. You chose us. That's what makes us different. We're yours. And that introduces a whole new reality to us. So Lord, we are yours. And I pray that you would own us and put your thoughts deep in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is funny, the people that you come across that end up changing you. Between my junior and senior year of college, I spent about three months in the city of Santo Domingo. It's in the Dominican Republic. Many of you know where the Dominican Republic is. It's an island somewhere south of Florida, somewhere north of South America. It shares the same island with Haiti. It's uh, the island of Hispaniola. All summer long, I got to work on a construction project. Everything there in the Dominican is built with mortar and brick and blocks, cement blocks. Everything is cement blocks. And so all summer long, I got very good at mixing cement, mixing mortar for the blocks to go between the blocks, and we would stack up the blocks. I spent almost all day, every day, with a man named Rafa. Rafa. I'll just say it kind of the English way, Rafa. It's short for Raphael. Rafa was an amazing man. He was a poor man, even by Dominican standards. He was a peasant in a third world country. He had maybe a third or fourth grade education. He could barely read, but he could read. And he had some profound speaking abilities. Rafa was a pastor. He had a few years before I met him, his wife had some sort of mental breakdown. She was at home bedridden. He had two daughters. They would stay at home with his wife all day long and care for her. And he had to leave the pastoral ministry so that he wouldn't be a burden on a church. And he was a self-taught stonemason. 
and he would go working all around the island as a stonemason. And so when this Christian organization had this stone project, they, of course, reached out to Rafa, and he was all too happy to come and help. Rafa was a godly man, a godly man. He would talk of his daughters and their fear of the Lord, their joy in the Lord, how they would fill his home with music. And Rafa bore in his heart secret shame and guilt, worrying that maybe his wife's mental trouble was his fault. And he had to learn that that wasn't his fault, and that God was in control. Rafa liked to joke. He was always giving me a hard time. In fact, his favorite line was, he'd say, Greg, listen to me. If you keep doing that, your mother is going to cry rivers. <laughs> he was always accusing me of something that would force my mother to cry rivers. So one day, I played a practical joke on Rafa back. He had a He's very afraid of snakes. And with that little bit of knowledge, we had a little fun at Rafa's expense. And he paid me back times ten, let me tell you. Rafa was always very quick to correct me. If he felt that my attitude was getting just ever so slightly out of line. Say, Greg, oyeme, listen to me. And he would correct me, try to bring me back. Why, do I, why am I talking so much about Rafa? Rafa was a man who defies what we would think as a philosopher, as a man who thinks deeply about the things of God. Rafa was a stonemason who could barely read, who also happened to think more deeply about God than most people I've ever met. We live in a culture that is absolutely hostile to thought. Think of all of the noise that comes to you in the course of a day that threatens to crowd out thought. Furthermore, we live in a culture that disparages thought. When a person is thoughtful, that's often spoken of as almost an insult. So much so that I fear real true, productive, godly thinking is being driven from the minds of regular people, of Christians even. But if there's one thing, one central thing God has called us to immediately after we are born again, it is this, God expects his people to think and to think deeply about him. That's what God is calling every one of us to. And we have no excuses. In fact, we've been afforded every privilege. 
to think deeply about the things of God. And that is exactly what Paul is calling us here to today. For you have not so learned Christ. Let's review very quickly. Daniel read for us Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. But we have been reviewing, we have been uh, studying, rather, beginning in verse 17. Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And how is that walk characterized? How is that life characterized? In the futility of their minds. There's a way of thinking. There's a Gentile way of thinking that puts itself out into Gentile-like living. And Paul has been telling us that that Gentile way of life is destabilizing. He's trying to bring us to a place of Christian stability. And the first thing he wants to do is highlight just how destabilizing Gentile ways of thinking are. And we talked last week that we never outgrow Gentile thinking. We never escape it. It's always nipping at our heels, Gentile thinking. Gentile thinking is always right at the door. And so in 4, 17 through 19, Paul describes... How Gentile thinking is, at its core, a refusal to let God be God. There's something that God wants in our lives, and we've hardened our hearts to Him. That, in turn, plays itself out in sinful fruits. And Paul says, away with that sort of thinking. Now, Paul is going to contrast Gentile way with the Christ way. Would you like to know what the Christ way is like? Would you like to be a pillar? Would you like to be a person who influences people for good? Would you like to be a person who walks with God and thinks deeply about God and understands the mind of God? This is step one. Paul is now going to make this contrast. And let's look right here in verse 20 about how Paul begins to Give us the Christ way. There's the Gentile way. We studied that last week. Now there's the Christ way. He says, number one, that the Christ way is rooted in relationship. He says right here, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. I want us to notice, first of all, that this relationship that you have with Christ, is quite direct. It's a direct relationship that you have with Christ. Paul says you did not learn Christ this way. Now, he also says that you heard him. Our translations say this. Our translations say we heard about him. But I want you to know that the ESV has sort of added that word about in there to smooth it up a little bit. Does anybody have a New American Standard with you today? Anybody have a... Your New American Standard, Anna, and your American Standard, New American Standard, Betty, says it like this. It says that you haven't heard about Christ, but that you heard Christ. You heard Christ. Imagine it this way. It's dinner time, and I shout for my children. They're playing outside. I shout, children, it's time to come inside for dinner. Well, what's the difference when they come in and one says, yes, Dad, I heard you. And the other one says, my sibling told me that you called. 
one is quite direct, isn't it? I heard you. I heard your voice. And that's the idea right here. We have heard, Paul says, directly from Christ. We learned directly from Christ. This word, that is not how you learned Christ. It's the word mathetuo, or disciple. You followed Christ. You learned Christ. What Paul is painting here is that when you heard of Christ, when you came into the service and listened to the exposition of his word, that was Christ himself coming and talking to you. You've had a direct one-on-one relationship with Christ. You've heard him. You've learned him. You've heard him. It's direct. Furthermore, this is a learned. This is a learned relationship. Paul says in verse 20, 21 rather, assuming that you have heard him and were taught in him as the truth in Jesus. Now, Paul is saying, I, I know that you were taught this. I know that you've been taught who Christ is. There's a Gentile way and there's a Christ way. I know that you heard directly from Christ himself. I know this. And I want you to know something, Paul says. Listen, I know that you not only heard from Christ directly, but I know that you heard the truth of Christ. Paul says right here in verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, or as truly is in Jesus. Now, friends, what Paul is getting at here is this. He's saying this. When you came, when you came around God's people, when you came to church, you you learned Christ. You heard his voice. I know you did. And I know you heard truly about him. In other words, you didn't hear... if it, if the word came from this book, you heard him truly as he is. Paul says, you folks in Ephesus, none of you got to walk with him. None of you got to see him. None of you were like Peter who got to spend three years with him. You all heard about him indirectly through our voices. But I want you to know, you've heard truly from him because Christ has promised he's put on himself he's taken it upon himself to preserve his word we too sitting here 2,000 years from then have heard truly Christ Christ is speaking to us through his word right now we are hearing his voice we are learning from him personally. That is the way of Christ. It is a personal union as we learn of Christ. He's not a impassive subject that we learn about in school. He's a real person who talks to us and listens to us and communes with us. He's a real person who wants us to teach teach us about himself. And so, Paul has been setting up this contrast. There's the way of Gentiles, and there's the way of Christ. The way of Christ is direct and learned and true. It's personal. 
But what does it look like? What is that way of Christ? That's what he's going to talk about now. Okay, so if you have your notes, you need to take down these three words, okay? In fact, if you look in your translations right now, Paul's going to describe the way of Christ, and he does it with three words that are very easy to find, okay? He says right here, what's the way of Christ? Verse 22, to put off. Verse 23, to be renewed. And verse 24, to put on. Do you hear the similarities of those words? They're very similar in Greek too. Super similar in English, identical in Greek. To put off, to be renewed, and to put on. You want to know what the way of Christ looks like? What the path of Christ looks like as you walk with him in this relationship? To put off, to be renewed, and to put on. So let's use those as our three remaining points for this morning. To put off, to be renewed, and to put on. What does Paul say we have to put off? He says there are some things we have to put off. The word put off literally means to take off layers of clothing and lay them aside. How many of you have been hiking on a, this time of year or perhaps in the fall? It starts off cold in the morning and you've got some layers on. And so you say to your friend who you're hiking with, I'm going to have to shed a layer. So you take that off. Then you might be upset at yourself because you now have to carry that thing. You tie it around your waist or you stuff it in your pack. Sometimes you pull a Greg Baker and you hide it under a bush because you, you're going to pick it up on your way back through. That's what I usually do. So if you see an article of clothing on a trail, leave it because I'm probably coming back to get it, okay? I also, when I go running on the trails in the summer, I hide water along the trail. But sometimes very conscious hikers pick up the bottles of water thinking it's trash. Much to my chagrin when I come into this run and I'm several miles in and it's hot and I don't have my bottle of water that I squirreled away there earlier in the day or the day before. So if you see a full bottle of water in the middle of nowhere, assume it was put there on purpose, okay? At any rate, I digress. This word literally means not just to take off, but think of your teenage self taking it off and throwing it to the other side of the room, getting it off. That's the idea. Take it off and throw it away, throw it aside. Paul says we're to put off the old self. There's an old way of life which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Paul is saying we live in a cause and effect world. You can't throw sand into the gears and expect the machine to work right. You can't bring corruption into the recipe and expect it to taste good. As you're following Christ, there are certain things that Jesus saved you from that require you to be aggressive in picking them up and laying them aside. Jesus said it this way, 
He said, if your hand, hand, causes you offense, cut it off and throw it away. If your eye causes you offense, pluck it out and cast it off. For it is better to enter to the kingdom of God maimed than to the lake of fire whole. Paul, Paul is tapping that very language. Sin is a serious business. Now God be praised when we come to know Christ. He doesn't confront us about all of our sins all at once, does he? He usually does them one at a time, one at a time. And the longer we live, the more sinful we realize we are, and the more ideas and attitudes and thoughts and actions need to be picked up and put aside and picked up and put aside. Paul uses this terminology often. He says in Romans chapter 13, verse 12, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. The author of Hebrews puts it in race terminology like we saw in the Ogden Marathon yesterday. Let us lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run our race. Nobody wants to run with weight on. Added weight. Take off that which is holding you down and cast it off. Paul says that the things that we have to be most careful to pick up and take off and set aside are desires. He uses three words right here. You need to see these in your text. He says that these desires are corrupt. They're deceitful desires. Corrupt, deceitful, and desires. These are three different words to describe seduction. All three of these words, corrupt, deceit, and, dis and desires, are used all through the Greek language for sexual temptation that leads to destruction. The Greek culture was known for these sorts of stories. A temptress would come along and seduce one of the gods and this temptress goddess would draw out one of the gods with her seduction. And then right when he thought he was going to get what he wanted, Hercules would come and kill him. Or some other god like that. And here is what Paul is saying. There are so many things in this world that seduce us. He's not saying all the time, sexually, but he is saying that there are things, the seductiveness of wealth, the seductiveness of power. The world comes at us and tries to sell us a bill of goods. This thing is going to give you happiness. This thing is going to give you what you want. And just when you think you're on the verge of achieving it, it's ripped away from you and it ends up doing you more harm than good. Paul says all of those desires have to be gathered up and cast off, not tinkered or toyed with, not tinkered or toyed with at all. 
Now, Paul says that even though we're to put off this old man, we're to take it absolute seriously and cast it off, there's a second point. What was our second one? Our first one was to put off. What was our second one? The way of Christ, our second point? To renew. To renew. We're not supposed to be cars that are stripped down to nothing. There's a a building up. There's something new. This word to renew our minds. This is verse 23. And to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. The word renew actually means something a little different than we would make of it today. How many of you ladies like watching renovation shows? Anybody? Oh, some of you love watching. How many of you guys like watching renovation shows? It's okay. You can admit it. Oh, I see a couple of those hands there. They are nice. Well, this word actually can mean renovate a little bit, but it actually means something very different than that. What if I said this? Resuscitate. What image comes to your mind? Of a person performing CPR to bring a dead person back to life, right? Or what if I said this? That's, that's, a, that's what this word can mean in other contexts, to resuscitate. Or how about this? To take something that's junk and remake it so thoroughly that what it now is is something different than what it was. It's new, it's useful, it's shiny, it's perfect, but it's something altogether different than what it was. Would we call that renovation? No. We'd call that remaking, recasting, repurposing. That's the word. Paul says that our minds, which were given to corruption, given to this Gentile way, need to be resuscitated and transformed and renewed and turned into something totally repurposed and overhauled and reworked to the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Okay? Paul uses this often. He says in Romans 12, verse 2, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He says that this is supposed to take place in the spirit of our minds. This is our innermost thoughts. Let it never be said that Christianity is about how we look or talk or dress or what we do. Christianity is chiefly about how we think. And Paul says we are to be renewed in our, the innermost part of our being. He says in Colossians 3.10, you have, put off the, you, have, uh, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. We're in Psalm 51.6. We're going to talk about this psalm a little bit later. We sang part of this psalm. Remember when we sang, Created me a clean heart, O God? This is from psalm, that's from Psalm 51 as well. He says, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Transformed thinking, renewed, resuscitated, repurposed thinking. So do you want to walk the way of Christ? Put off the old way of thinking. 
Now, how many of us have been taught put off and put on? But we skip the step, don't we? Put off, be revived, be renewed, be renovated, be transformed. And then, our third one, then put on. Put off, renew, and put on. Paul says the way of Christ is adding to put on. Meaning, and this is the meaning of this is actually just the opposite of what it means to take off and put away. This actually means to put on, to clothe yourself. Notice that this is internal. Paul has not left the boundaries of thought. He's saying that we are to put on the image and likeness of God, and this is essentially thought. Paul wants us to think hard about our thinking. Notice what Paul says here in verse 24. This is so very important. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I have up here on the screen that this putting on is cosmic. What I mean by that is it is of ultimate importance. God's ultimate purposes of redemption begin in your mind. They begin in your mind. Friends, God wants to make all things new. God will recreate everything. God is going to make a new heavens, a new earth, where you'll spend eternity. But the place that God begins that work is in your mind. In your mind. He wants you to think his thoughts after him. And he says that these, that this way of transforming your thinking is genuine. It's genuine. He says that he wants you to put on new self, this new, vastly important thing created in the likeness and image of God in true righteousness and holiness. I have up here two Proverbs. I have up here two Proverbs. Proverbs 14.12 and Proverbs 16.25. Friends, there is a way that seems right to a man. But its end is the way to death. Its end is the way to death. How many of us have been brought, just think about this, have been brought to a religious system, for example, that puts a premium on looking good and feeling good? Look good, feel good. And when you look at these lifestyles of the people who go and worship at churches where the message is look good and feel good, you think, wow, how can something that looks so good and feels so good be bad? I mean, they look good and they tell me they feel good. Surely that's good, right? There is a way. For all the world, seems right to a man. All that looking good and feeling good, man, it just, it does. It seems so good. What's the way of some of that thinking? Death. Death. But Paul says, not so with Christ. 
when you get into Christ's words and when you get into Christ's book and you put on his thinking and you start to think and live and work out the way Christ would have you to think and live and work out, you have no fears that you're on the wrong path. It's genuine. It's righteous. It's holy. It's, it's full of God's fullness and splendor. It's trustworthy. You don't have to worry that God's going to cut the branch off at the roots when you're all the way extended out at the end. God is righteous. God is holy. So what I'd like to do is draw a conclusion from this text and make, make three applications, okay? We worked our way through this passage really quickly. Okay, and I want everybody to sort of gather our strength for the last few minutes and think hard about thinking hard, okay? Let's think hard about thinking hard. What is this passage calling us to? What is this passage asking of us? Paul is calling us to careful, redemptive meditation. Putting on the new self, being renewed in our minds, putting off the old man. What Paul is calling for right here, the Christ way, requires careful, redemptive meditation. Now I want everybody to listen to what I'm about to say. You might think this sounds quite judgmental. I can guarantee you it is not. Some of you right now are saying to yourself, I am too busy for meditation. And I'm going to tell you something. If you are too busy for meditation, you are too busy. Okay? It's not the meditation that needs to change. Solomon says, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers who build it build in vain. Do not eat the bread of anxious toil. Christ is calling us to a life thoughtful, careful, redemptive meditation. And you say, I, I've cut out. I have cut out all my extras. It's just my job. Friend, you really would be better off finding a new job and having time for meditation. It is that important to your soul. It is that important to what God is doing in your life. God is calling us to this. So what, a, what does careful, redemptive meditation look like? What does it look like? Does it, does it mean we have to go sit Indian style on a hill somewhere? <laughs> Stare at the sun? No. Here's what it looks like. Number one, it's frequent. Turn with me to Psalm 63, okay? Turn your Bibles to Psalm 63. When somebody gets there in the Pew Bible... Shout out the page number so everybody else can find it. 479, Psalm 63. Listen to David's plea. Listen to a man. He's a, David is a warrior. David is a, a hard worker. He is a shepherd. Here's what a... Here's what a warrior says. God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. 
as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as, you, as, long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Listen to this. This is, this is a life that is characterized by careful, redemptive meditation. My soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. This is a life day in, day out, thinking, ruminating, meditating on the goodness and mercy and grace of God. It's a heart that hears something of God and rises to bless what he or she has just read. This is a person who has learned to refuse the crowding out David was the king of a vast nation. Imagine how his day could have been sucked dry with all the needs of a kingdom. Not just warfare, but food and water and supply and priests and administration and laws and rules and details and currency. Think of all the detail that, have, that could have come at him that he had to actively push out. So that in the night watches, I can think about you and meditate on you and praise you for who you are. Paul is calling us, the Bible is calling us to frequent, needy, and prolonged meditation. And if we're too busy for meditation, we are too busy. Number two, this sort of meditation has to be deliberate. How many of you have accidentally meditated lately? <laughs> it was like I was just going about my day, cutting the grass, watching a golf tournament, and I found myself meditating on the Lord. I don't know what happened. No, it doesn't work like that. Because our old man is still here, and we've got to kick him off the throne. That cranky old guy, got to get rid of him. And be renewed and put on. And it does require proactive thought. Twice Solomon says this. Listen to this, guys. The simple are killed by their turning away. And the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and be at ease without dread of disaster. There is this complacency and foolishness go hand in glove. A lack of planning is the simple's banner. God is calling us to a life of meditation that is frequent and needy and prolonged and has to be absolute, deliberate, absolutely deliberate 
or it will not happen. Okay? Last. Paul is calling us to careful, redemptive meditation. How many of you stayed in Psalm 64? Let's flip over to Psalm 51. Okay, it's just a few pages back. Flip over to Psalm 51. We just sang this song, Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. This last week, this last week, those of you who've been reading along your Bible reading came upon the event that drew out Psalm 51. In the time of year when the kings go off to war, David, King David, stayed in his castle. And he stopped meditating on God and he started meditating on girls. And he saw a beautiful one. And he took her and he slept with her. Her name was Bathsheba. She got pregnant. And so he killed her husband, Uriah. And then he took her into his harem and thought that his problems were over. Except God showed up. Nathan the prophet confronted him. You're the man, Nathan said. This was David's repentance. This is David's repentance. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I want us to move forward to verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Deep inside, you teach me. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be washed in snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Now, friends, listen. There is meditation that can meditate on God, but on some of the wrong things of God. Some of the least godly people I know are theologians. Because they've gotten so entangled on the mechanics of how God works that they lose sight of the redemption that they have in Christ Jesus. They've lost what David has here in Psalm 51. This sense of awe that God has redeemed them and blotted out their sins. That God doesn't look anymore upon their failure. How is David ever going to raise his head again? How is he ever going to go back and live 
his life in a redemptive way? How is he going to move forward in the face of this huge failure? Purge me with hyssop. Create in me a clean heart. Put truth in the inward parts. This is redemptive meditation. Change me, Lord. Help me to feast on the things that are closest to your heart. Namely, your steadfast love and mercy. And that, that sort of thinking is what redeems us. Now should we do theology? Should we think through the nuances of God and how God works? Absolutely, yes. But the main part of our life with God needs to be reflection on the redemption that he has given us. I have a question in closing, okay? Everybody ready for this? How many of us usually learn the easy way? Okay? By contrast, you can raise your hands because I'm going to raise your hands. How many of us usually have to learn the hard way? Okay. For those of us who have to learn the hard way, which is most of us most of the time, this sort of redemptive meditation that's frequent and prolonged will grow you and you'll start to find your feet on the way of Christ to his glory and kingdom and righteousness. All right, let's pray. Father, help us to live lives that meditate thoroughly on your redemption. Make us people who think your thoughts after you. Make us people who would say like, like thirsty, like the thirsty ground that needs your water. Help us, O oh Lord, to cry out for you and wait for you. Transform us from within as we renew our minds and put off the old man and put on the new self, which is in Christ Jesus. Give us grace for this. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.